Support for this episode comes from Lexus. What emotion fits in the palm of your hand? Can you wield the power of gravity? What does exhilaration sound like? Only Lexus asks questions like these because they believe the most amazing machines aren't inspired by machines. They're inspired by you. Not only has Lexus asked these questions, they've answered them. Discover the answers at Lexus.com curiosity. Lexus. Experience amazing. I can recall two very early moments. One is when my grandfather kicked my little brother in the head during one of his sermons, and my brother was falling asleep. And my brother was probably three at the time. And my grandfather kicked him in the head to wake him up. But he kicked him in the head with his big black shoes. And I heard, I saw the kick, but I also heard the thud. And my brother didn't cry. But seeing that happen to my brother was worse, I think, than anything that ever happened to me. Because I saw him try to fight back the tears and succeed. And there was something about that courage that annihilated me. The woman you just heard was seven years old at the time this happened. The abuse she described just got worse. She and her brother were raised in a cult and suffered repeated trauma throughout their childhoods, all in the name of God. I'd tell you her name, but I don't know what it is, and you won't either. My name is Sarah Kay. I'm a poet and educator from New York City, and I'm the host of Sincerely X from TED. In each episode of the show, we hear the story of an anonymous person. We give light to an idea in hiding, and then we go deeper, exploring this idea with the help of others. Our guest in this episode became one of the only people to escape from this cult. But escaping physically is one thing. Escaping from the messages, expectations, and the stories they created, that's another. This is true even if our childhoods weren't marked by this kind of violence. Part of growing up is figuring out what narratives from our past are harmful or aren't serving us any longer. How can we rewrite those scripts when we need to, to pursue a different path? That's the idea we'll explore today on Sincerely X. Can you tell me why to you it feels necessary to be anonymous in this story? I think most of the people who come from where I come from, the ones who have stayed or the ones who have left, have had enough um, pain. It's not my job to point fingers at those who have stayed or dig up old wounds for those who have left. And mm, there's so many reasons, but mainly because it's my family and it's my family name. And I also don't want my children to, because they were not raised in that community, I don't want them to have to live the legacy of being attached to something that has created so much pain in the world. When I was a small child, I felt abandoned a lot. My parents believed that they were giving us over to God right at birth. And my mom was very frightened, I think, of attachment. 
she didn't attach to us. She believed that it was a sin to put your own children above anyone else. And so whether we died or didn't was completely in God's hands. It was not in hers. She just had to be willing to let us die. However, we were trained to see ourselves as part of the army of God. We're trained to see ourselves all on the same team and working together for a higher purpose. Our guest's grandfather founded this cult. He presented himself as a godlike figure, an Old Testament god who was angry, jealous, and violent. He insisted that the cult members bend to his will and subscribe to his teachings, and our guest's entire family did. They believed in self-sacrifice above all else. They valued pain and struggle. The more you suffered, the holier you were thought to be. And anyone who disobeyed was punished severely. They were also incredibly insular. As a child, our guest had almost no contact with the outside world. She also had no one to care for her. She often didn't know where her next meal would come from. But she developed an inner strength from a very early age, and this gave her the courage to start to explore. I began to find little windows of opportunity to escape physical spaces. And that felt like power. My grandmother lived in a home. My grandfather had been very paranoid about people from the outside um, trying to break in. And so the house was basically booby-trapped. Every door was automatically locked. Every window was sealed shut. There was a wrought iron gate with spikes, and they had a Doberman that attacked. And I learned to, and this is like, I just feel so scandalous that I did this, but I did. I learned to fold a piece of paper and push it in the door, and after my grandmother's asleep, to leave the house and be able to get back in. Where did you go? Well, at first I would just sit on the porch, you know? It was just that I could get back in, that I could walk out and get back in. And probably for two years, that's as far as I went. I think that's a form of resistance. And I think any time that I stepped away from the script that was handed to me, I was participating in an act of resistance. Was there any small pleasure that you were able to steal for yourself, whether it was drawing, whether it was um, reading in class, whether it was... Definitely reading. Learning to read was an incredible gift to me, and, and that made me feel like I could envision an escape route, that I had some idea even where I existed in space on the planet. That was huge. And I started reading the Bible, and I told myself the day I turned eight that I was going to read the Bible cover to cover before I turned nine. What? And I read every word, every single word, every he begat. So as a very young child, I was doing something that was called sacrilegious, and I was very secretive about it. So does that mean you were, like, reading the Bible by flashlight under a blanket? Like, yes. How, really? Yes. That's exactly how I was reading it. And I think at the beginning, it really wasn't defiance. It really was, there's something wrong with me. I don't understand. I wanted so much to become a believer, like a true believer. And I thought that the Word would help me do that. And instead? And instead, it made me question everything. Absolutely made me question everything. So 
You had mentioned that already the idea of escape was somewhere in your brain, maybe not an explicit escape plan yet, but certainly that the idea of somewhere that's not here yes. was somewhere in your head. How much was it in your head and how concretely? I was sexually molested systemically when I was seven for a very long time. And I didn't understand that that is what was happening. But I think that that violation made me feel that I could live outside of my body. And so there started to be this ability continually to imagine that the escape then would be the ability to not be in my body. I hadn't yet thought of the escape as something that I could physically manifest, but I was clearly emotionally manifesting it. I started to understand that there was a physical space that could exist outside of the organization. It took me until I was 17 to figure out how to navigate that. So between age 10 and age 17, you were looking for a way out. Yeah. I think my power was in all the ways that I could walk away from any moment. We walked to chapel and we would perform chapel, but above chapel was this road. And one day as a teenager, I walked up to the road and I looked at the road. And then the next time I went up there, I looked at the road a little bit longer. And then one day I stepped on the road. Another day I started walking the road and I walked far enough to find out where it went. And I believe that started happening more and more. And what happened at 17? I had become a worker. There started to become more openings. There was more need. Her family needed money, so they allowed her to start cleaning houses away from the organization. And one of the women she cleaned for noticed that she was bright. The woman saw her potential and encouraged her to apply to college. Our guest had no formal education, no transcripts, no course credits to show for herself. She hadn't been to a conventional school. So she hand wrote a poem for her college application, and she was accepted by a college that valued non-traditional students. It was my way out, but it was also something that I was ashamed of wanting. I didn't feel pleasure in getting it. I felt fear, and I didn't feel liberated. I felt petrified that if I did this, I would never be able to come back, and that not only would I go to hell, but that I would destroy my family that had taught me what loyalty meant. It felt like an extreme act of betrayal. So there was freedom in these little moments of walking away because I knew I could come back. When I went to college, I knew I couldn't come back. But I also knew that I couldn't live my whole life there and that I had to find a way to support myself. And I knew that learning was, well, I pretty much thought it was the only way that I could learn what I needed to know to support myself. When you were a kid and someone left the organization, what was the rhetoric of how people were talked about if they left? 
they were dead to us. We did not communicate with them. They were weak and worse than people who had never belonged to the organization. And I felt that all those people had just turned their back on this amazing gift. And then I became one of those people. The members of the cult tried to keep her from going. They organized an intervention to convince her to stay. But once she left, that was that. They cut off contact. She was left alone in the world. There was a little part of me that maybe thought that this was my path, and I felt that perhaps I was capable of adhering to the standards that I'd been raised to adhere to outside of the organization. And there was probably a time at the beginning where I thought I would continue God's work from the outside. During my freshman year of college, all of that changed. I, didn't, I wasn't sure how to integrate any of my beliefs into the world that I actually was living in in that moment. It was a co-ed dorm. And it was frightening to me. Um, I remember going to a party right at the beginning, and I didn't drink at the party, but this beautiful basketball player, you know, was there with me, and he wanted to dance with me, and I was so frightened because he, he like, put his arms on me, you know, like like a hug. Well, I don't know. I guess the hug was the dance, right? But I had never danced. And it made me, it startled me and I jumped back. And then he reached out to hold my hand. And I thought, I seriously thought I could get pregnant from that. I had no idea. It was, it was, it was awful. It was so awful. There was always things that I was missing and I felt perpetually behind every moment of my education. For example, when I was a freshman, I was taking just a survey of English literature class. And the professor put us in small groups and gave us a poem called Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens. And immediately I said to my group, well, this means this, 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 and this. And they're like, how do you know that? And I said, well, clearly, I mean, because first of all, there's all these biblical references, but I completely understood that poem from moments after seeing it. And my group said, well, here, you just you just tell her when she comes around. So it was my first time to do that, to like actually say to a group, well, here's the context of this particular poem. And the professor also asked me to stay after class. And she said, how did you learn to do that? That was like, you taught me something about that poem. And I didn't even know how to answer her question. But from that moment, um, she said, this is a gift. This is a gift you have, and you should do something with this. It's also important, I think, that, like, your ability to ask questions and see meaning and seek meaning had always been framed for you as what made you difficult. Yes, and this was a person calling it a gift. I think so. I think maybe she's the first person who told me <laughs> that anything that I did was valuable. And I think maybe that moment in that class was the first time I saw freedom as having somewhere to go rather than just somewhere to flee from. As a child, she had been given specific instructions for how to live her life. She had been told exactly who she could be. 
by leaving for college, she'd started to question those teachings and actively seek new ones. But it wasn't so simple. The teachings she had internalized as a child still ran deep. She had escaped to a new place, but she still had to find a way to escape all of the things she had just accepted as true for so long. In a moment, we'll hear about how she did that. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X. From TED, this is Sincerely X. I'm Sarah Kay. So far, we've heard the anonymous story of a woman who was raised in a cult. She was traumatized by violence from a very young age, but she found a way to escape, to walk a new path. She figured out that she needed to write a new script for her life. But this was no easy task. Eventually, her past caught up with her present. While she was in college, an ex-member of her cult sought her out. She had left the organization first and inspired him to escape as well. He was significantly older, but they quickly became friends. She found that it was easy to be with him. It was much easier to be with someone who understood where she came from than to try to explain herself to someone new. He wanted to marry me immediately when I was 18. And so we got married shortly thereafter, and it prevented me from having to date or navigate the social world. Then I started having children myself very young. From the moment you decided to get married, was having kids absolutely a certainty? Or did you talk about it? Did you... It was a given. It was a given. Um, that's the only... I, I didn't believe that sex served any other purpose at that point. So we were just going to have kids. Were you scared? I was scared I wouldn't know how to love them. I was scared I didn't know what love felt like. I think the very first thing I did was go to the library. And I started looking at books on child rearing. And at that point, all the notes that I had learned to take as part of an academic system, I applied to researching um, what could be affected by nurture as opposed to nature. I read happiness studies and what countries are most happy. And then I looked at the ways that they raise their children. And I just boiled it down to what I considered to be the most essential traits that I thought would could be taught these words that I thought, these are traits I want to instill in my babies. And I will have examples of what they look like um, on one side of the card. And then I will put up these, I taped them up all over the house, these words. And I would remember that each of the things I was choosing to do would fit these particular traits. So for example, I wanted to instill curiosity in my children because I had had that, but it had been penalized. And I wouldn't use any of the restraints. I, I wouldn't use a playpen. I wouldn't use um, any sort of device, like they don't call them leashes, but any sort of tether, you know, that I felt that they would always have access to my body. And they would always have access to whatever physical space was around. And then I had a series of other, like joy, for example, I wanted my children to experience joy and I didn't know what that felt like. And I hadn't yet, even at that age, 
found out what joy felt like. So I started reading about like what the expression of joy, like the micro <laughs> expression, what that looked like. And then I would try to emulate it on my face to teach it to them. I think emotionally, I didn't trust myself at all. But what just completely shocked me was how much love I had and how much I would have done anything to keep them safe emotionally and spiritually. And it made me even question more what was wrong with me that my mother didn't feel that for me. Like, what kind of monster must you give birth to to want to shove it away? But not to turn your back and never see it again, but to like watch it struggle and to be okay with that. Whatever it is that she couldn't give to her babies was something that when I had a baby of my own, when I had babies, I, I thought, how is this possible that this doesn't move you? I know you said that before you raised them, you had never experienced joy, but you wanted to figure out what it looked like so you could emulate it. Do you remember now, either the first time or a time? I remember an early time where I felt the sun. We went out um, in the snow and they were so little and one of them turned her face towards the sun, you know, and just lifted her chin a little. And it was so instinctual, like she wanted that warmth. And for the first time, like I put out my hand, like where her face was, and I felt the sun and I felt that it was pleasure. I felt the pleasure of that sun and I felt that I saw my hand for the first time and all of those senses and I could smell, you know, the way that her breath smelled like I got so close to her. And I felt that there was so much pleasure in that act and I, I can picture exactly where I was standing and I felt like, oh, I never thought of the sun as a source of pleasure until that moment. So I have two questions that are related to each other. Um, one is, why did you feel like you wanted to talk to us about your story? And what about your story do you think is important for other people to know about? At least in my experience and for many, many people who I've talked to that come from backgrounds of trauma, you won't erase the trauma, but what you can do, I think, in reprogramming and what I'm still in the process of doing is finding new ways to manage that trauma. I was able to change certain things for my children because I was so deliberate, but what I didn't understand was that I still felt like the girl who deserved to be abused. And... I think that so many of us need to rewire that, and that takes a lot of work. When she says it takes a lot of work, she really means a lot of work. It was one thing for her to write a new narrative for her children, but writing a new narrative for herself, that took a much longer and more complicated process. She had to build a community of people whom she could trust. She had to find ways to take control over her experiences. She had to learn how to feel her feelings. And most importantly, she had to learn to feel safe in her own body. It took being able to sit in my body to recognize that the feelings that I had, 
that those were something that I needed to allow into my consciousness. And so I learned to meditate. And I went to an ashram. And at the beginning, I couldn't couldn't sit for 15 seconds. I literally couldn't. I just got up. When I first took my first yoga class, I just left during Shavasana. In fact, for two years, I left during Shavasana. I never could once lie there. I couldn't. I couldn't stand like the feelings that were coming over me and I couldn't stand the consciousness of those feelings. I heard angry male voices in my head for a really long time and I didn't know how to stop it. So while I was in motion, I, and being told what to do, I could perform. I moved so fast that anytime I stopped at all, there was this overwhelming sense of feeling and I didn't want to feel. Learning to understand the body has been a much longer journey for me. And learning to sit in the present, even though that's taken me a very long time to do, that has probably been the most difficult part of the journey. Do you have thoughts on interrupting what people would call the cycle of trauma or the cycle of violence? I think it's like a drama and the role we play in a drama. We've been handed a script, been programmed, as you will, from an early age to participate in a particular drama. And so those are the roles we know. I think finding a new script is partly about finding new language, but I think it's also about finding new intention. And when I think of being part of the drama, I think that one thing we do is we find someone else to make us feel the way that we're comfortable feeling. But once I became conscious as an adult, I needed to find a new role to play. Not all of us have grown up inside a cult or experienced the level of abuse that this guest has. But many of us will relate to the need to escape from harmful childhood behaviors and stories. After I spoke with this guest... I wanted to know whether her recovery process was common or whether there was something extraordinary about it. Are her methods and strategies well-established, or did she stumble upon an exceptional way to recover from trauma? What should we, the audience, take away from her story? To answer some of these questions, I turned to psychologist Susan David. With our guest's permission, I shared her story with Susan, who coined the term emotional agility, a person's ability to navigate their inner world. Like me, Susan found this story to be remarkable. With this particular guest, you know, the values that her community um, prioritized were um, ability to endure pain and willingness to sacrifice yourself for God's mission. And I'm curious, if you if you were to meet that child when she was in this community, what would you say to her? What would you say to a, a, a kid? I would say to her, I would say to a child and I would say to an adult that, again, your feelings of dissonance, your um, difficult emotions are often signposts to the things that you care about. 
So she describes, for instance, uh, noticing her brother and how her brother was kicked by her grandfather with this big black boot coming down. And so I think you start seeing, even at that very young age, a noticing in the dissonance some of the values that then evolve in her as she gets older. They are striking in that they've got their roots even in her, you know, broken and yet hopeful spirit at the age of seven or eight years old. You spend a lot of time um, talking about the need to, you know, embrace and acknowledge and feel feelings, even ones that are negative. When someone has blocked off their feelings as a strategy to survive their memories of abuse, what what do you tell someone? Well, I think what's, and I'll just say this quickly, I think, you know, what's really remarkable about uh, this guest is that she is experiencing this panic and yet she keeps going back to yoga. You know, yes, she she leaves at a point where she feels she can't take it, but she goes back the next week. And, you know, I think that what she's starting to do so gradually is really embark on what I think is one of the greatest human triumphs, which is to choose to make room in her heart for the joy and the pain and to move towards discomfort. There's a metaphor that our guest returns to again and again, and it has to do with um, the roles in a script and um, specifically in kind of in reference to like what we would call the cycle of, of violence. Do you think that it is possible for a person to escape the roles and the narratives that they have inherited? Have you seen other people do this? And what does it usually take in order to do that? I think what you start seeing here is very much the embodiment of emotional agility in this individual, which is that she's saying this is something, this is a story that is part of who I am, and yet I don't want that story to own me. I want to own my story. And this is really important because what she's not doing is she's not denying her past. She's not pushing her past away or ignoring it, pretending it didn't exist. What she's actually able to do is the sign of resilience and good health, which is to take this enormously difficult experience to integrate it into her life and to say, I am someone who was abused, but I am not my abuse. I am more than my abuse. And so she's able to have that story almost like a little post-it note in her pocket. It's about allowing that part of you to have a rightful place, which is just in your pocket but that you are able to bring other parts of yourself to the world that are connected with your values and who you want to be and how you want to parent and how you want to live your life. And we can do this just as this guest has done in ways that really embody, I think, the best of 
humanity in our ability to evolve and grow and be sustainable and successful human beings. When I think about this guest, I think about her as a girl, listening to other people tell her who she could be and what was possible and impossible for her future. And then I think about her as a young woman, being exposed to entirely new stories in college. Then I think about her later as a parent, writing new scripts for her children and eventually writing new scripts for herself. By doing this, she found a way to chart an entirely new kind of life. Like Susan David says, she still carries her past with her like a post-it note in her pocket, but that past is not the only part of her story. It's not the only thing that defines her. For me, as someone who teaches poetry, a big part of my work is helping people write their own stories. I want people to feel agency over their language. I want them to write poems or narratives that help them see themselves in a new way with new words or roles. I think that's the best version of what poetry can be. One of the scripts I was handed was this show um, where we had someone who played Houdini and I would be trapped in this metal box and the actor Houdini would put in steel rods. The trick to the act is the person inside needs to maneuver their way around the steel rods. And I feel sometimes that when I'm trapped and I feel something coming at me that I can't control, that I have developed the flexibility to move around it until I can figure out how to open the door. You're a very good poet. Sincerely X is produced by Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Kim Netterfane petersa Destry Sibley, Eva Waltriver, and Chloe Shasha. With the help of Sharon Mashihi, Angela Cheng, Janet Lee, Michelle Quint, Jesse Baker, and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Lorena Aviles Trujillo. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X.